Senator Joe Manchin, a debt ceiling savior. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Conversation. I'm David Schuster, good to have you on board today. As the Republican-led US House pushes the United States closer and closer into a default, an intriguing new player has emerged who seems to perhaps have an answer in terms of raising the debt ceiling. It is West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. He says that he has had conversations with Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and that McCarthy has assured him that cuts to Social Security and Medicare are not conditions for raising the debt ceiling and avoiding a default. Can Manchin be believed? Can McCarthy be believed? Well, here to talk about all of this is Christina Karika Haley. She's a Democratic strategist. Um, Christina, first of all, what do you make of Joe Manchin essentially inserting himself into all of this? Um, I think it's where Joe Manchin feels the most comfortable, to be honest. I think you know it's obviously come to be much more highlighted in in the past year or two. But you know that's where Joe Manchin has always found himself. I mean, I think if if he truly continues to represent West Virginia, that's kind of where West Virginia is, right? It's a red state that has a lot of blue qualities and things like that. But I think where he's found his sweet spot is is kind of you know as I don't know if I would call him savior as we did in the intro, but as a kind of broker. Right, and he feels that he's able to chat with uh, Republicans in a way that a lot of his Democratic colleagues aren't. Um, whether that's true or not, maybe. I mean, it has proven uh, correct in, in a few situations. But I think the most intriguing part is he is able to have these conversations. However, if he keeps going back, like with the Inflation Reduction Act, et cetera, and voting with the Democrats, I wonder how long, you know, how short his leash with the Republicans is going to get. The state of West Virginia has something like 60% of its population relies exclusively on Social Security and Medicare. So this yeah. feels like the sort of issue where Joe Manchin can't necessarily burn the Democrats as he's burned them before by making a promise that Social Security and Medicare won't be cut and then suddenly he's proposing a cut. Um, but again, is that something that coming out of the words, coming out of the mouth of Joe Manchin, that Democrats can trust? I honestly think that specifically just related to, to Medicare and Medicaid because of the, the the population in the state, that is something he can address. Unless uh, you know he comes out and and makes his decision, which I, I hope it's not uh, at, you know before the debt ceiling has solved, because he said you know at the end of February the governor of West Virginia I believe is going to be making his decision about running, and thus will force Mansion to make a decision. Now if he decides that's run, he can make a lot of interesting decisions, and it doesn't matter the percentage of of West Virginians who benefit or or don't from it. I don't see uh, Joe Manchin doing that way. You know, there's one thing to be said: he's burned both. Democrats and Republicans, but he's always seemingly done right by the West Virginian people. You mentioned Joe, Joe Manchin's political future. He's up for reelection in 2024. He hasn't really indicated what he's gonna do about a Senate reelection. Um, the other part about in terms of the trust with this equation is whether or not Joe Manchin can trust what the Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is telling him. Uh, is Joe Manchin perhaps exceeding or giving too much trust in Kevin McCarthy if in fact McCarthy is saying, don't worry about Social Security and Medicare? Um, you know, I, I think that's tough. Uh, trusting Kevin McCarthy after what was it, 15 votes, I think it is, and, and giving away the baby, the bathwater, and anything else that was, you know, along with it to become this this speaker, this kind of new speaker of the house, as I've been referring to it, because it's kind of just a spokesperson. Um, so that being said, trusting is one thing. I think the conversations though are helpful. I have actually been hearing some pretty, um, as a Democrat, some pretty, I guess. Um, hopeful conversations from some uh, Republican House members from Alabama and others that are urging for the 
discourse to stop from no negotiations and things like that um, to, hey, let's bring it to the table. So I'm hoping, you know, the the idea of no negotiations, the idea of just letting the debt ceiling go is obviously not one our country can afford. And I don't think people really understand the true economic ramifications of it. And I think that's, you know, the lack of civic education in this country, which is a whole nother series of shows that could be had. Um, but I think there needs to be a little extension of trust to McCarthy in the sense of being able to have these conversations to maybe promote a little bit more in the public eye a sense of stability, a sense of hopefulness and working together. But I think at the end of the day, just as the speakership was won by Kevin McCarthy, he's going to have to give some things up. And and hopefully, in my point of view, it's, it's giving in to a lot of the demands that the Democrats have. However, a lot of the Democrats, even in the House, I believe Hakeem Jeffries either today or yesterday was saying, hey, we need to see a, if we see a proposal from the Republicans, then we can start talking as well. So I think the tone of negotiation Negotiation is changing, which I personally think is good. I think this idea that we're not going to negotiate, we'd rather just, you know, uh, let go and see what happens until, you know, J- June hits and, and we're up a creek without a paddle. Democratic <laughs> strategist, should there be uh, an allowance for any sort of linkage between, you know, raising the debt ceiling and examining Social Security and Medicare? And I guess what I mean is, in my view, Social Security and Medicare should not be touched, they should be strengthened. I would suggest raising the amount of money that is paid into Social Security in the front end, but that's a whole other issue. But there's been some suggestion though, well, maybe Democrats can get Republicans to raise the debt ceiling if Democrats will agree to some sort of blue ribbon committee to study what the options are for fortifying Social Security Medicare. Is that something Democrats can walk down? I, you know, it's a tough question. I think it's a tough question. I think it depends how much teeth that committee would have. But at the end of the day, I think if you're looking at it, all of us who are kind of inside this bubble, right? We could probably say, yes, we understand that it would just be years of talking about something and it wouldn't actually be a change. However, it would truly, truly be devastating, I think, for Democrats um, on a a political level, on a kind of PR level, right? A disaster. And I personally, even though I'm I'm a centrist, I'm not quite a Joe Manchin, but I'm a centrist. I agree with you. I don't think that one of the pillars that is our country uh, can be messed with, so to speak. There's been some suggestion that, well, you know, Social Security is running out of money and that there's a certain point at which it's going to pay out more money than it takes in. I think that could be within, some people say within five or six years and might only be able to pay 85%. But the way to sort of save Social Security is you either, you know, cut benefits or you raise the retirement age. That's sort of the binary choice that Republicans have suggested. Or there's the other thing you do, and that is you say, okay, well, right now it's the First $149,000 that gets taxed towards Social Security. Let's make it the first $500,000 so that millionaires and people who are paying a lot of money in taxes, they actually contribute more to Social Security. Where do those conversations go when Democrats say, no, it's not the raising the retirement age or cutting benefits that will solve this, it's allowing more money into the system? Is that just met with just the door being shut by Republicans? I think, yeah, I think honestly, where both sides are a little bit uh, guilty of shutting the doors when these conversations start to happen. And I think to your point, this idea of, of a more economic approach to to reforming and, and strengthening, I like the word strengthening the social security program, of looking into what type of increased rates um, at, at the percentage of salary, et cetera, should be had. I think you know, in our 24-hour news era and 170-character you know Twitter era, it gets very difficult for folks to even talk about this. And oftentimes, 
they've been able to kick the can down the road, both sides have. But Republicans, for the most part, have their you know 170 characters, their quotes about um, Social Security specifically, that they know is gonna get them the kind of coverage and the voter support in their districts. And they say that, and then that's the end of it. So I don't know how many true conversations are had by a majority, especially of Republicans. Um, but I do know there are a few uh, in the House and in the Senate that have been willing to kind of have a more economic discussion about it, which I think is where we need to kind of rely on in order to move forward in strengthening Social Security. And politically for Democrats, does it still cut well against Republicans when you can say, look, Republicans are trying to cut or gut Social Security and Medicare. And regardless of you know Republicans crying foul about, oh no, that's not what we're doing, we're just changing it. Still, I mean, the, the, the perception, I think it's a fair one, is that Democrats see Republicans not liking Social Security and Medicare because it is a quote unquote government run program. Uh, and so Republicans say it's a government run program, they hope to score points on that. Democrats say, yeah, but they're trying to cut a very successful program. How does it cut politically? Listen, I have to say the the Republicans are great at this. I mean, I've been watching uh, countless news stories of even Marjorie Taylor Greene toting programs that were all thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act, right? So um, historically, Republicans have been better at selling just about anything, including something that could be detrimental to their their voters and and a lot of their voters. I mean, I always laugh uh, in the villages in Florida, right? Staunch Republicans, all of this stuff, and most of them are benefiting from a lot of the programs that are demonized uh, by the right. But somehow, and I think it's a lack of understanding of how the programs work and the maybe the age uh, um, differences within the parties. But somehow, Republicans, no matter how they go after, how they attack Social Security, are still able to play it well. So it's actually, I think, more of a risk for Democrats to, um, to take it top full because kind of the sexier messaging and, and things like that just doesn't come from our side. So the coverage doesn't happen. So then it allows the Republicans to be able to control the messaging. And, and so far, um, Social Security hasn't been one of the main issues to win or lose any of these tight races for Democrats. And as far as the debt ceiling, how do you see that playing out over the next couple of weeks and months? I, you know, I think I think it's going to be very interesting when people start looking down the road a little bit at what what will happen to interest rates, what will happen for small businesses and things like that. And I think that's where the tides will turn a little bit. Um, I do hope, and maybe this is a little optimistic on my end, I, I do hope that McCarthy will kind of uh, quiet the extreme almost majority of his party, I feel like at this point. I was point. gonna say crazies, but keep yeah. going. <laughs> Extreme crazy, I think at this point synonymous. Um, but hopefully, you know, cooler heads will prevail and they'll they'll come to it. I do not see the United States of America starting to default on things. So I, we might take it to the dramatic end, but I do see it being raised. Christina, I pray that you are correct. Christina Karika Haley, she's a Democratic strategist. Uh, Christina, thanks for coming on the program. We appreciate it. Thank you. You got it. Welcome back to the conversation, I'm David Schuster. There's been a lot of talk, of course, across the United States about raising the minimum wage. But there's also been an effort in some states over the past several years to actually 
loosen the prevailing wage laws. And what I mean by that is in certain construction states and places where there's construction work, states have generally codified what the minimum wage should be. But now over the last 10 years or so in Indiana, West Virginia, Kentucky, Arkansas, Wisconsin, and Michigan, they actually loosened the prevailing wage laws, essentially left it up to the states and contractors to figure out in the hopes for the best. Well, how did that turn out? To talk about it is Juliana Kaplan. She's a labor and inequality reporter for Insider. Juliana, thanks for joining us. Did I get that about right? I mean, these states essentially said, okay, we're gonna get rid of the prevailing wage laws and see how things shake out. What happened? Yeah, I would say you nailed it. So essentially prevailing wage laws, as you very accurately summarized, are setting minimum wages within jobs like construction, uh, although actually there's sort of a trickle down effect or trickle out effect. Um, sometimes custodians and other service workers are included as well as well within the prevailing wage laws. And prevailing wage usually applies to government contracts. So that's why you know we haven't seen the federal minimum wage go up in a long, long time. But prevailing wage laws are essentially meant to ensure that all the workers are getting paid the same rate and that people who are bidding for government contracts. So like if there's a big building being built near you, a bunch of construction companies are probably built bidding because they wanna get that big contract and they wanna come in with the lowest bid. Prevailing wage laws are meant to make sure that they're not making that lowest bid by paying people a lot less. Um, and in these states, Indiana, Wisconsin, West Virginia, Arkansas, Michigan, this was all studied by the University of Illinois. What happened therefore to the construction wages in those states when the prevailing wage laws were loosened? Yeah, so that's a great question. So the animus behind rolling back these prevailing wage laws was, oh, this will save taxpayers money. It will you know, make people build more. Uh, that's not what we saw happen. So we saw wages for construction workers go down in those states um, who would have been covered by the prevailing wage laws. We actually saw fatality rates go up among construction workers in the states where the prevailing wage laws were rolled back. And there was also a greater reliance on um, social safety net benefits, which in and of itself you know, those benefits are incredibly important. There's no shame in utilizing them. But that being said, if you're somebody with a job that had a wage level before where you wouldn't have necessarily needed to use those, if your argument is that these higher wages are a drain on taxpayers, um, you know, taxpayers also subsidize those benefits. So taxpayers were still, and to a certain degree, subsidizing the wages, but just for people who are in a dire enough spot to need things like, you know, food stamps, for instance. So they loosen the, the wage laws and suddenly people are getting paid less for construction work. Uh, they're less productive. They're more likely to be injured on the job and cost the taxpayers in other ways. Was this seen as a surprise according to the researchers at the University of Illinois? I mean, I think the, the researchers themselves, you know, and economists who study this were not necessarily surprised, um, but it did come as a surprise to the states who did it. So I wanna say in West Virginia, I believe the governor said, you know, we rolled back this prevailing wage law and we were ready for all of the projects and all of the workers to roll in and they never did. <laughs> um, so yeah, there you go. 
So a surprise, I mean, look, this is this is done by, you know, whether it's Governor of West Virginia or other states, they do it because they think they can save taxpayers money. It turns out that it makes the, the workers um, certainly unhappy. Uh, perhaps it costs the state more in other ways. Um, so what is, you know, what does West Virginia do with something like this? Is there now an effort to sort of change and say, okay, we tried with the prevailing wage laws to loosen it. That didn't work. Let's bring it back. Yeah, that is a great question. I have to admit, I am not fully up to date on what each of these individual states are doing. But I think that the appetite to bring in a new regulation is not necessarily always high. Although that being said, I would be curious to see how if legislation was brought to a vote, how that would go. Because we have seen historically right-leaning states vote to increase their minimum wages overall. So I think if it were something that people were to weigh in on, you might see a different type of result. Um, but I think also right now, some of the messaging that went behind let's roll back these prevailing wage laws was a lot of this animus of, okay, like we need to be spending less um, on the government, we need to stop draining taxpayers, we need to get rid of these regulations. And I think we're seeing a lot of that rhetoric right now in regards to the current economy. So I'd be curious to see how it plays out. One of the other things, as I understand it with prevailing wage laws, it was also to sort of assure that, you know, if you have, let's say, a minimum $25, just for argument's sake, an hour for somebody who's a construction worker, you know you're going to be able to get a certain amount of labor supply at that rate. Whereas if you drop the wage down to, say, 17 bucks, Maybe there are fewer people who want to be on that particular construction project. So by keeping the wages up, it's sort of a way of making sure that whoever gets these contracts gets the construction workers and is able to fulfill these duties. Um, did that get hurt also, the ability to sort of accomplish this and have enough of worker supply when the wage laws sort of were loosened? Yeah, so there wasn't exact data necessarily on worker supply. What they did find was actually a smaller share of project money was going to in-state projects, so you know, make of that what you will. But in terms of the impact that prevailing wage law does have on worker supply, the same researchers actually looked at this through the lens of custodians, who I mentioned are part of those government contracts. You know, if you are building a big building or doing you know government work, you're going to need people to clean up. And so a lot of states have prevailing wage laws that apply to custodians on those jobs. And they found that custodians in states with prevailing wage laws, um, you know, it, they were much more likely to stick around. They were much easier to hire. They were not dealing with labor shortages. And this is one reason that the researchers actually contend that if you want to fight a labor shortage, you should enact prevailing wage laws. So we've seen it go the other way. When you enact prevailing wage laws, you do not have as much of an issue with worker supply. The workers are better compensated, they'll stick around for longer. And a lot of prevailing wage law too, also especially for construction workers, requires some sort of apprenticeship or training that is you know, in tandem with like that type of work rather than you know, through a private method. And that's also what the researchers attributed some of that fatality rate increasing to as well. So not only are you getting more workers more easily to your point, um, but they might be better trained or at least not hurting themselves as much. Yeah, or, or with less turnover, they're going to have you know more experience in this particular yeah. job and therefore perhaps uh, perhaps safer. Um, I'm not I'm not aware of how prevailing wage laws work in terms of the federal government. We talked about the states, but is there such a thing as a prevailing wage law when it comes to federal government contracts? 
Um, so yeah, federal contractors do have their own minimum wage. Essentially, and that was actually a big move by the Biden administration. <laughs> um, I don't know what word I was gonna say, Biden administration. They raised the federal contractor minimum wage to $15 an hour. I gosh, I wanna say back in 2021, but someone can fact check me on that. So that impacted a lot of workers um, and you know, not just like, your typical like who you might think of as a government worker, like the aides in the White House. Although I would assume they're probably making more than $15 an hour. I have not seen their paychecks. But again, coming back to like custodians and service workers, for instance, who are on federal contracts. And you know, the Biden administration has repeatedly reiterated um, that they support a $15 minimum wage. If they can't do that on a federal level, they'll enact it where they can. So that was sort of the guiding decision behind raising that wage for federal contractors. And what does this do to the overall argument? I mean, the the, the national minimum wage remains a 7.25 an hour. Uh, what does all of this do in this sort of the study from the University of Illinois about prevailing wage laws? Does it impact that debate? In other words, strengthen the hand of those who say, look, you raise wages and you actually can save money in all sorts of ways by keeping workers on the job, by having them experienced and productive and safer. <sighs> I mean, Yes, people have been doing research on this since, you know, basically like the federal minimum wage was last raised in 2009, which is now 14, almost 14 years ago, 13 and a half. But, you know, there's been a lot of research that has found that raising the minimum wage would not only bring millions of people out of poverty, it would disproportionately impact women and workers of color, but also in terms of what you're saying regarding savings. There's been really good research finding that raising the minimum wage would actually cost taxpayers less because it similarly to the prevailing wage law, um, people would not need to access benefits as much. And again, not saying that you know benefits like SNAP or Medicaid or Medicare are, are bad, like it's a bad thing to access them, but ideally you're in a situation where you don't need to. And the more people who rely on those, you know, the more everyone has to pay into those rather than them getting a living wage and benefits through their job. And fair to say that for a whole host of reasons, uh, there's not much appetite at the federal level for dealing with the minimum wage. So this is really essentially a state by state battle in terms of campaigns to raise the minimum wage or to deal with prevailing wage laws. Yeah, and you know, it is definitely for workers in states who are impacted, who are making more, like that is a game changer for them. Um, but that being said, you know what we see uh, across the country is that many states opt not to raise their minimum wage above the federal level. And those states, which are primarily in the South, also have a much larger population of black workers working at the minimum wage. So having this be on a state by state basis does end up with racial inequity where black workers doing the same job in another state are making a lot more. But just because of your geographic area, which again does happen to be have a higher concentration of black minimum wage workers, you know, those workers are making a lot less. And to have such a disparity, obviously, it causes problems in and of itself. Um, Juliana Kaplan, she is the labor and inequality reporter for Insider. Julia, thanks for diving into this for us. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You got it. And that'll do it for this edition of the conversation on behalf of Asher Cofield, Craig Lowry, Bart Kyle. Mark Gillespie, John DeSilva, Skip Vallaco, Gina Kim, and the rest of the gang that have contributed 
to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We will see you again somewhere soon.